the fort. Good evening, dear listeners. This is uh, Adam Hebert back on the air after a what is probably my most long, uh, long absence. <laughs> I'm sorry, being <laughs> being a little distracted, but that's okay. Uh, we can we can kill the music, I think. Uh, first of all, I just want to take a moment to um, thank everyone for their understanding and concern during my time of crisis. Um, the long story short is that I was facing having to move um, on a very stringent timetable. Um, thankfully, we dodged that bullet. I don't have to get a new place to live um, as long as I make sure I'm uh, following through on certain commitments. Um, so, um, I, I don't want to go into details, uh, but, um, again, thank you all very much. Um, I'm back. Dread Time Stories is back, baby. Um, so, uh, this week we got a great show. Um, for our story, for the story portion of this program, we have two stories by, um, Lord Dunsany, um, at least I thought we did. Uh, I know I edited two stories. Um, but we've got... Uh, including one of Lovecraft's... Um, uh, a story Lovecraft himself was um, very fond of. And that is the Hashish Man. Um, so there you have it. Uh, we'll get to the second one as soon as I have a chance to uh, reacquire it. Um, but um, anyway, uh, so for our Tales from the Table segment, unfortunately, it's just... Anyway, uh, <laughs> radio station news. Um, there's just been so much that's gone on in our in our tabletop game. Um, so I'm going to kind of bomb line it. Our, my group has been uh, given the assignment of investigating strange and savage murders in a town um, in what is basically the breadbasket of the continent of Era um, named Drummond. Um, and the reason why I picked that name for the town is um, 
my my good friend John Kendall passed away in October, and um, he lived in Drummond, Montana, and so um, I wanted to um, honor his memory in some way by working him into my D and D campaign. And don't worry, Drummond is not the 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 town name is not the only way he has been. Um, uh, honored in our story. Uh, there's more. So anyway, they traveled to Drummond, and to get there, they first had to fight a, a what is called a Venom Troll. And basically, every time you hit this troll, it um, basically its blood is caustic, um, and it causes poison damage. Um, it cannot even hurt itself to create to create a spray of poisonous blood. Um, so, um, again, I, I think I might be being a wee bit too nice to my players. We're going to have to fix that. But uh, they beat the troll, and then they had to beat a, a group of bandits, and the leader of the bandits had the unfortunate... Um, unfortunately got his head crushed by our wizard, who was in the form of a giant mammoth at the time, um, because he made the mistake of hurting someone near and dear to his heart. And so, yeah... Uh, they arrived in Drummond. They um, they met with the headman of the town, the mayor, uh, who was basically the mayor, um, and checked in into their um, inn to begin their investigation. And that is where they met the new uh, player character, Nathan Soto, who um, is based off of a no whose whose race is uh, Lalafell, and it's based off gnomes. Um, but he's the, he's a rogue. He is a um, Oh, arcane trickster archetype rogue. And so he showed them where uh, there was a body that had had chunks ripped out of it. Basically whole limbs ripped off. Um, and um, Lelk, the goblin ranger, spoke to a nearby rat who was eating from the carcass. And the rat gave them some information because it saw what happened. It said it was something that could fly but wasn't a bird. It had blue skin and it was at least for humans tall. Humans. Or it was it wasn't as tall, but it was as big as for humans. They then went to investigate a nearby farm that had reported a missing farmhand. Um and Rosamel's uh our our Dryashi monk uh, Kenze Monk uh, basically went to pose as a farmhand, got hired, and then to get to basically when he realized there was nothing of importance uh, to extract him, Keys, one of my NPCs who is also a rogue, he's a rogue thief, got turned into a cow to pretend he was an, uh, a, a cow that was being stolen from the farm by Nathan. And uh, comedy ensued because... Uh, <laughs> Poor Keys got uh, stunning striked by Rosamel, and uh, yeah, not much happened after that. But yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at now. Um, but it, it, we're having good. We're having a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun telling my story. Um, that's the thing is that um, I am. Uh, oh, sorry. I am truly enjoying um, being um, 
a dungeon master. It, it It's quite an experience. So anyway, we're going to get to our stories tonight. Um, starting with Lord Dunsany's The Hashish Man. And uh, then we'll be, uh, we're going to have all the usual fixings. This is going to be a regular Dread Time story show. We're going to have uh, two stories by uh, Lord Dunsany. Uh, we're going to have the Magnus Archives, Episode 18, The Man Upstairs, The Strange Doctor Weird, an old-time radio selection, uh, podcast pick. Yes, folks, that's right. I actually remember to do a podcast pick this week. Oh, isn't that great? Um, and, uh, yeah. So, without further ado, again, thank you all for your patience and your understanding. And so we're going to get to our story. Um, the Hashish Man by... Lord Dunsany. And, uh, yeah. Enjoy. Good evening, dear listeners. This is uh, Adam Hebert, back on the air after a what is probably my most lo uh, long absence. <laughs> I'm sorry, being <laughs> being a little distracted, but that's okay. Uh, we can we can kill the music, I think. Uh, first of all, I just want to take a moment to 
um, thank everyone for their understanding and concern during my time of crisis. Um, the long story short is that I was facing having to move um, on a very stringent timetable. Um, thankfully, we dodged that bullet. I don't have to get a new place to live um, as long as I make sure I'm uh, following through on certain commitments. Um, so um, I, I don't want to go into details, uh, but um, again, thank you all very much. Um, I'm back. Dread Time Stories is back, baby. Um, so uh, this week we got a great show. Um, for our story, for the story portion of this program, we have two stories by um, Lord Dunsany. Um, at least I thought we did. I know I edited two stories, um, but we've got, uh, including one of Lovecraft's, um, uh, a story Lovecraft himself was, um, very fond of, and that is the Hashish Man. Um, so there you have it. Uh, we'll get to the second one as soon as I have a chance to, uh, reacquire it. Um, but... Um, anyway, uh, so for our Tales from the Table segment, unfortunately, it's just... Anyway, uh, <laughs> radio station news. Um, there's just been so much that's gone on in our, in our tabletop game. Um, so I'm going to kind of bomb limit. it. Our, my group has been uh, given the assignment of investigating strange and savage murders in a town um, in what is basically the breadbasket of the continent of Era um, named Drummond. Um, and the reason why I picked that name for the town is um, uh, my, my good friend John Kendall passed away in October and um, he lived in Drummond, Montana. And so... Um, I wanted to, um, honor his memory in some way by working him into my D&D campaign. And don't worry, Drummond is not, the, the, the town name is not the only way he has been, um, uh, honored in our story. Uh, there's more. So anyway, they traveled to Drummond and to get there, they first had to fight a, a what is called a venom troll and basically every time you hit this troll it um basically its blood is caustic um and it causes poison damage um it cannot even hurt itself to create to create a spray of poisonous blood um so um again i, I think i might be being a wee bit too nice to my players we're gonna have to fix that but uh they beat the troll and then they had to beat a, a group of bandits, and the leader of the bandits had the unfortunate, um, unfortunately got his head crushed by our wizard, who was in the form of a giant mammoth at the time, um, because he made the mistake of hurting someone near and dear to his heart. And so, yeah, uh, they arrived in Drummond. They um, they met with the headman of the town, the mayor, uh, who was basically the mayor, um, and checked in into their um, inn. To begin their investigation and that is where they met the new group uh player character 
Nathan Soto, who um, is based off of a no whose whose race is uh, Lalafell, and it's based off gnomes. Um, but he's the, he's a rogue. He is a um, oh arcane trickster archetype rogue, and so he showed them where uh, there was a body that had had chunks ripped out of it, basically whole limbs ripped off, um, and um, Lelk the goblin ranger spoke to a nearby rat who was eating from the carcass and the rat gave them some information because it saw what happened it said it was something that could fly but wasn't a bird it had blue skin and it was at least four humans tall humans or it was it wasn't as tall but it was as big as four humans They then went to investigate a nearby farm that had reported a missing farmhand. Um, and Rosamel, uh, our, our Dryashi monk, uh, Kenze monk, uh, basically went to pose as a farmhand, got hired, and then to get to basically when he realized there was nothing of importance uh, to extract him, keys... One of my NPCs, who is also a rogue, he's a rogue thief, got turned into a cow to pretend he was an, uh, a, a cow that was being stolen from the farm by Nathan. And uh, comedy ensued because uh, poor Keys got uh, stunning striked by Rosamel. And uh, yeah, not much happened after that. But yeah, that's that's kind of where we're at now. Um. But it, we're having good. We're having a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of fun telling my story. Um, that's the thing is that um, I am. Uh, oh, sorry. I am truly enjoying um, being um, a dungeon master. It it it's quite an experience. So anyway. We're going to get to our stories tonight, um, starting with Lord Dunsany's The Hashish Man, and uh, then we'll be, uh, we're going to have all the usual fixings. This is going to be a regular Dread Time story show. We're going to have uh, two stories by uh, Lord Dunsany. Uh, we're going to have the Magnus Archives, Episode 18, The Man Upstairs, The Strange Doctor Weird, an old-time radio selection. Uh, podcast pick. Yes, folks, that's right. I actually remember to do a podcast pick this week. Oh, isn't that great? Um, and, uh, yeah. So, without further ado, again, thank you all for your patience and your understanding. And so we're going to get to our story. Um, The Hashish Man by Lord Dunsany. And, uh, yeah, enjoy.
This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rafe Ball The Hashish Man by Lord Dunsany I was at dinner in London the other day. The ladies had gone upstairs, and no one sat on my right. On my left there was a man I did not know, but he knew my name somehow, apparently, for he turned to me after a while and said, I read a story of yours about Beth Mora in a review. Of course I remembered the tale. It was about a beautiful oriental city that was suddenly deserted in a day. Nobody quite knew why. I said, Oh, yes, and slowly searched in my mind for some more fitting acknowledgement of the compliment that his memory had paid me. I was greatly astonished when he said, You were wrong about the Noosa sickness. It was not that at all. I said, Why, have you been there? And he said, Yes, I do it with hashish. I know Beth Mora well and he took out of his pocket a small box full of some black stuff that looked like tar, but had a stranger smell. He warned me not to touch it with my finger, as the stain remained for days. I got it from a gypsy, he said. He had a lot of it, as it had killed his father. But I interrupted him, for I wanted to know for certain what it was that had made desolate that beautiful city, Beth Mora and why they fled from it swiftly in a day. "'Was it because of the desert's curse?' I asked. And he said, "'Partly it was the fury of the desert, and partly the advice of the Emperor Thubamlin, for that fearful beast is in some way connected with the desert on his mother's side.' And he told me this strange story. You remember the sailor with the black scar, who was there on the day you described when the messengers came on mules to the gate of Bethmora and all the people fled? I met this man in a tavern, drinking rum, and he told me all about the flight from Bethmora, but knew no more than you did what the message was, or who had sent it. However, he said he would see Bethmora once more whenever he touched again at an eastern port, even if he had to face the devil. He often said that he would face the devil to find out the mystery of that message that emptied Beth Mora in a day. And in the end, he had to face Thubamlin, whose weak ferocity he had not imagined. For one day, the sailor told me he had found a ship, and I met him no more after that in a tavern drinking rum. It was about that time that I got the hashish from the gypsy, who had a quantity that he did not want. It takes one literally out of oneself. It is like wings. You swoop over distant countries and into other worlds. Once I found out the secret of the universe. I have forgotten what it was, but I know that the Creator does not take creation seriously for I remember that he sat in space with all his work in front of him and laughed. I have seen incredible things in fearful worlds. 
as it is your imagination that takes you there, so it is only by your imagination that you can get back. Once, out in the aether, I met a battered, prowling spirit that had belonged to a man whom drugs had killed a hundred years ago, and he led me to regions that I had never imagined, and we parted in anger beyond the Pleiades, and I could not imagine my way back. And I met a huge grey shape that was the spirit of some great people, perhaps of a whole star, and I besought it to show me my way home, and it halted beside me like a sudden wind and pointed, and, speaking quite softly, asked me if I discerned a certain tiny light, and I saw a far star faintly, and then it said to me, That is the solar system, and strode tremendously on, and somehow I imagined my way back, and only just in time, for my body was already stiffening in a chair in my room, and the fire had gone out, and everything was cold, and I had to move each finger one by one, and there were pins and needles in them, and dreadful pains in the nails, which began to thaw, and at last I could move one arm, and reached a bell, and for a long time no one came, because everyone was in bed. But at last a man appeared, and they got a doctor, and he said that it was his sheesh poisoning. But it would have been all right if I hadn't met that battered, prowling spirit. I could tell you astounding things that I have seen. But you want to know who sent that message to Beth Mora? Well, it was Thubamlin, and this is how I know. I often went to the city after that day that you wrote of. I used to take hashish of an evening in my flat, and I always found it uninhabited. Sand had poured into it from the desert, and the streets were yellow and smooth, and through open, swinging doors the sand had drifted. One evening I had put the guard in front of the fire, and settled into a chair, and eaten my hashish, and the first thing I saw when I came to Beth Mora was the sailor with the black scar, strolling down the street and making footprints in the yellow sand. And now I knew that I should see what secret power it was that kept Beth Mora uninhabited. I saw that there was anger in the desert, for there were storm clouds heaving along the skyline, and I heard a muttering amongst the sand. The sailor strolled on down the street, looking into the empty houses as he went. Sometimes he shouted, and sometimes he sang, and sometimes he wrote his name on a marble wall. Then he sat down on a step and ate his dinner. After a while he grew tired of the city and came back up the street. As he reached the gate of green copper, three men on camels appeared. I could do nothing. I was only a consciousness, invisible, wandering. My body was in Europe. The sailor fought well with his fists, but he was overpowered and bound with ropes and led away through the desert. I followed for as long as I could stay, and found that they were going by way of the desert round the hills of Hap 
towards Utnavehi, and then I knew that the camelmen belonged to Thubamlin. I work in an insurance office all day, and I hope you won't forget me if ever you want to insure life, fire, or motor, but that's no part of my story. I was desperately anxious to get back to my flat, though it is not good to take hashish two days running, but I wanted to see what they would do to the poor fellow, for I had heard bad rumours about Thubamlin. When at last I got away, I had a letter to write. Then I rang for my servant and told him that I must not be disturbed, though I left my door unlocked in case of accidents. After that, I made up a good fire and sat down and partook of the pot of dreams. I was going to the palace of Thubamlin. I was kept back longer than usual by noises in the street, but suddenly I was up above the town. The European countries rushed by beneath me, and there appeared the thin white palace spires of horrible Thubamlin. I found him presently at the end of a little narrow room. A curtain of red leather hung behind him, on which all the names of God, written in Yanish, were worked with a golden thread. Three windows were small and high. The emperor seemed no more than about twenty, and looked small and weak. No smiles came on his nasty yellow face, though he tittered continually. As I looked from his low forehead to his quivering under-lip, I became aware that there was some horror about him, though I was not able to perceive what it was. And then I saw it. The man never blinked. And though later on I watched those eyes for a blink, it never happened once. And then I followed the emperor's rapt glance and I saw the sailor lying on the floor, alive but hideously rent, and the royal torturers were at work all round him. They had torn long strips from him, but had not detached them, and they were torturing the ends of them far away from the sailor. The man that I met at dinner told me many things which I must omit. The sailor was groaning softly, and every time he groaned, Thubamlin tittered. I had no sense of smell, but I could hear and see, and I do not know which was the most revolting, the terrible condition of the sailor, or the happy, unblinking face of the horrible Thubamlin. I wanted to go away, but the time was not yet come, and I had to stay where I was. Suddenly the emperor's face began to twitch violently, and his underlip quivered faster, and he whimpered with anger, and cried with a shrill voice in Yanish to the captain of his torturers that there was a spirit in the room. I feared not, for living men cannot lay hands on a spirit but all the torturers were appalled at his anger and stopped their work, for their hands trembled with fear. Then, 
two men of the spear guard slipped from the room, and each of them brought back presently a golden bowl, with knobs on it, full of hashish, and the bowls were large enough for the heads to have floated in had they been filled with blood. And the two men fell to rapidly, eating each with two great spoons. There was enough in each spoonful to have given dreams to a hundred men. And there came upon them soon the hashish state, and their spirits hovered, preparing to go free, while I feared horribly. But ever and anon they fell back again to the bodies, recalled by some noise in the room. Still the men ate, but lazily now, and without ferocity. At last the great spoons dropped out of their hands, and their spirits rose and left them. I could not flee, and the spirits were more horrible than the men, because they were young men, and not yet wholly moulded to fit their fearful souls. Still the sailor groaned softly, evoking little titters from the Emperor Thubamlin. Then the two spirits rushed at me, and swept me thence as gusts of wind sweep butterflies, and away we went from that small, pale, heinous man. There was no escaping from these spirits' fierce insistence. The energy in my minute lump of the drug was overwhelmed by the huge spoonsful that these men had eaten with both hands. I was whirled over Arvel Woundery, and brought to the lands of Snith, and swept on still until I came to Cragua, and beyond this to those bleak lands that are nearly unknown to fancy. And we came at last to those ivory hills that are named the Mountains of Madness, and I tried to struggle against the spirits of that frightful Emperor's men, for I heard on the other side of the ivory hills the pittering of those beasts that prey on the mad as they prowled up and down. It was no fault of mine that my little lump of hashish could not fight with their horrible spoonsful. Someone was tugging at the hall door bell. Presently a servant came and told our host that a policeman in the hall wished to speak with him at once. He apologised to us and went outside, and we heard a man in heavy boots who spoke in a low voice to him. My friend got up and walked over to the window and opened it and looked outside. "'I should think it will be a fine night,' he said. Then he jumped out. When we put our astonished heads out of the window to look for him, he was already out of sight. End of the Hashish Man Recording by Rafe Ball The Highwayman From The Sword of Welleran and Other Stories by Lord Dunsinay this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Dale Grothman. The Highwayman by Lord Dunsinay. Tom o' the Rhodes had ridden his last ride and was now alone in the night. From where he was, a man might see the white recumbent sheep and the black outline of the lonely downs, 
and the gray line of the further and lonelier downs beyond them or in the hollows far below him out of the pitiless wind he might see the gray smoke of hamlets arising from black valleys but all alike were black to the eyes of tom and all the sounds were silence in his ears only his soul struggled to slip from the iron chains and to pass southwards into paradise and the wind blew and blew for tom tonight had naught but the wind to ride they had taken his true black horse on the day when they took from him the green fields and the sky men's voices and the laughter of women and had left him alone with chains around his neck to swing in the wind forever and the wind blew and blew but the soul of tom o the roads was nipped by the cruel chains and whenever it struggled to escape it was beaten backwards into the iron collar by the wind that blows from paradise from the south and swinging there by the neck there fell away old sneers from off his lips and scoffed that he had long since scoffed at god fell from his tongue and there rotted old bad lusts out of his heart and from his fingers the stains of deeds that were evil and they all fell to the ground and grew there in pallid rings and clusters and when these ill things had all fallen away tom's soul was clean again as his early love had found it a long while since in spring and it swung up in the wind with the bones of tom and with his old torn coat and rusty chains and the wind blew and blew and ever and anon the souls of the sepulchred came from consecrated acres would go by beating up the wind to paradise past the gallows tree and past the soul of tom that might not go free night after night tom watched the sheep upon the downs with empty hollow sockets until his dead hair grew and covered his poor face and hid the shame of it from the sheep and the wind blew and blew sometimes on gusts of the wind came someone's tears and beat and beat against the iron chains but could not rust them through and the wind blew and blew and every evening all the thoughts that tom had ever uttered came flocking in from doing their work in the world the work that might not cease and sat along the gallows branches and chirruped to the soul of tom the soul that might not go free all the thoughts that he had ever uttered and the evil thoughts rebuked the soul that bore them because they might not die and all those that he had uttered the most furtively chirruped the loudest and the shrillest in the branches all the night and all the thoughts that tom had ever thought about himself now pointed at the wet bones and mocked the old torn coat but the thoughts that he had thought of others were the only companions that his soul had to soothe it in the night as it swung to and fro and they twittered to the soul and cheered the poor dumb thing that could have dreams no more till there came a murderous thought and drove them all away 
and the wind blew and blew. Paul, Archbishop of Alloy and Veyens, lay in his white sepulchre of marble, facing full to the southward, toward paradise. And over his tomb was sculpted the cross of Christ, that his soul might have repose. No wind howled here as it howled in the lonely treetops up upon the downs, but came with gentle breezes, orchard-scented, over the lowlands from paradise, from the southwards, and played about forget-me-nots and grasses in the consecrated land where lay the reposeful, round the sepulchre of Paul, Archbishop of Alloy and Veyence. Easy it was for a man's soul to pass from such a sepulchre, and, flitting low over remembered fields, to come upon the garden lands of paradise, and find eternal ease. And the wind blew and blew. In a tavern of foul repute three men were lapping gin. Their names were Joe and Will and the gypsy Paglioni. None other names had they, for of whom their fathers were, they had no knowledge, but only dark suspicions. Sin had caressed and stroked their faces often with its paw, but the face of Puglioni Sin had kissed all over the mouth and chin. Their food was robbery, and their pastime murder. All of them had incurred the sorrow of God and the enmity of man. They sat at a table with a pack of cards before them, all greasy with marks of cheating thumbs, and they whispered to one another over their gin, but so low that the landlord of the tavern at the other end of the room could only hear muffled oaths and knew not by whom they swore or what they said these three were the staunchest friends that ever god had given unto a man and he to whom their friendship had been given had nothing else besides save some bones that swung in the wind and rain and an old torn coat and iron chains and a soul that might not go free but as the night wore on the three friends left their gin and stole away and crept down to the graveyard where rested in his sepulchre paul archbishop of alloy and venet at the edge of the graveyard but outside the consecrated ground they dug a hasty grave two digging while one watched in the wind and rain and the worms that crept in the unhallowed ground wondered and waited. And the terrible hour of midnight came upon them with its fears, and found them still beside the place of tombs. And the three friends trembled at the horror of such an hour in such a place, and shivered in the wind and drenching rain, and still worked on. And the wind blew and blew. Soon they had finished, and at once they left the hungry grave with all its worms unfed, and went over to the wet fields stealthily, but in haste, leaving the place of tombs behind them in the midnight. And as they went they shivered, each man as he shivered cursing the rain aloud. And so they came to the spot where they had hidden a ladder and a lantern, there they held a long debate whether they should light the lantern 
or whether they should go without it for fear of the king's men but in the end it seemed to them better that they should have the light of their lantern and risk being taken by the king's men and hanged than that they should come suddenly face to face in the darkness with whatever one might come face to face with a little after midnight about the gallows tree on three roads in england whereupon it was not the wont of folks to go their ways in safety travellers to-night went unmolested but the three friends walked several paces wide of the king's highway approaching the gallows tree and will carried the lamp and joe the ladder but puglioni carried a great sword wherewith to do the work that must be done when they came close they saw how bad was the case with tom for little remained of the fine figure of a man and nothing at all of his great resolute spirit only as they came they thought they heard a whimpering cry like the sound of a thing that was caged and unfree to and fro to and fro in the winds swung the bones and soul of tom for the sins that he had sinned on the king's highway against the laws of the king and with shadows and a lantern through the darkness at the peril of their lives came the three friends that his soul had won before it swung in chains thus the seeds of tom's own soul that he had sown all his life had grown into a gallows tree that bore in season iron chains in clusters while the careless seeds that he had strewn here and there a kindly jest and a few merry words had grown into a triple friendship that would not desert his bones then the three set the ladder against the tree and puglioni went up with his sword in his right hand and at the top of it he reached up and began to hack at the neck below the iron collar presently the bones and the old coat and the soul of tom fell down with a rattle and a moment afterwards his head which had watched so long alone swung clear from the swinging chain these things will and joe gathered up and puglioni came running down his ladder and they heaped upon its rungs the terrible remains of their friend and hastened away wet with the rain with the fear of phantoms in their heart and horror lying before them on the ladder by two o'clock they were down again in the valley out of the bitter wind but they went on past the open grave into the graveyard all among the tombs and with their lantern and their ladder and the terrible thing upon it which kept their friendship still then these three that had robbed the law of its due and proper victim still sinned on for what was still their friend and levered out the marble slabs from the sacred sepulchre of paul archbishop of alloy and veillance and from it they took the very bones of the archbishop himself and carried them away to the eager grave that they had left and put them in and shoveled back the earth but all that lay on the ladder they placed with a few tears within the great white sepulchre under the cross of christ and put back the marble slabs thence the soul of tom arising hallowed out of the sacred ground went at dawn down the valley 
and lingering a little about his mother's cottage and old haunts of childhood passed on and came to the wide lands beyond the clustered homesteads there there met with all the kindly thoughts that the soul of tom had ever had and they flew and sang beside it all the way southward until at last with singing all about it it came to paradise but will and joe and the gypsy paglioni went back to their gin and robbed and cheated again in the tavern of foul repute and knew not that in their sinful lives they had sinned one sin at which the angels smiled the end of the highwayman by lord dunsinay racehorse owned by Colonel E.R. Bradley won only one race in his entire life. But that race was the Kentucky Derby. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell a story about how nature played a cruel trick on man. Among the rocky hazards to sailors and ships in the 17th century were the Skilly Islands of England. In order to keep ships away from the treacherous rocks of Skilly, the lighthouse of St. Agnes was built. In those days, of course, the source of light came from a fire and, ironically, the very first boat to carry the fuel to light the fire in the newly erected lighthouse never reached her destination. She smashed into it in the dark and was wrecked, believe it or not.
Oh, jeez. Help if I remember my mic was hot. And we're back. That was Lord Dunsany with the Hashish Man and the Highwayman. Uh, huge fan of Lord Dunsany, uh, Lord Dunsany, but uh, I didn't really get into him until after I heard about him through Lovecraft. And I, I you know, great fantasy writer though. Um, so we're gonna get to this week's episode of the Magnus Archives, episode eighteen, the Man Upstairs. We'll be right back after this on Dread Time Stories. Rusty Quill presents the Magnus Archives. Episode 18, The Man Upstairs. Christoph Rudenko regarding his interactions with a first-floor resident of Welbeck House, Wandsworth. Original statement given December 12, 2008. Audio recording by Jonathan Sims, head archivist of the Magnus Institute, London. Statement begins. Never buy a ground-floor flat. It may seem like a good idea, especially if, like me, you just spent a decade dragging shopping up three flights of stairs every week, but it's noisier, always has a worse view, and is far more prone to break-ins and other... problems. And then there is the matter of upstairs neighbours. I know that higher floors will, more often than not, also have people living above you, and moving from living in a top-floor flat to the ground floor like I did is not a common thing, but it's still true. I never had any real concerns about it until I moved to the ground floor of Welbeck House. These days I keep a much closer eye on those I live near. Welbeck House is a five-storey block of flats in Wandsworth Town Centre. A great area to live, actually. It's close enough to London proper that you can commute in easily, and enough amenities that you don't often need to, especially if, like me, you're self-employed. It wasn't cheap, but I've always been good with money, so when I decided to try and actually buy a place at age 34... I was able to afford a nice flat. After almost a year of searching, I settled on the ground floor at Welbeck. At the time, I hadn't really given much thought to my neighbours. Those I had encountered in the course of buying the place had seemed nice enough, and the previous owners of my flat hadn't mentioned anything. 
On the day I moved in, this would have been late 2002, I saw a man smoking, leaning out of the window just above my own. It was a grey, overcast day, and the forecast had said there would be rain later, so I was keen to move the last of my boxes inside and start unpacking, and I didn't really pay him much attention. I remember that he was wearing a hooded jacket, though, pulled up tight and obscuring most of his face. We locked eyes briefly. At least, I assume we did. I couldn't see his eyes, but I felt him looking at me. I could swear I smelled the weirdest odour. It's hard to describe, halfway between the smell of a pavement after rain on a hot day, and chicken that's starting to turn. It was unpleasant, to say the least, but the wind changed and it was gone as quickly as it came. The man in the upstairs window kept watching as I took my boxes inside, just continuing to smoke in silence, until at one point I came outside to get the last bits and noticed he was gone. I was slightly spooked by the encounter. It's hard to say exactly why, as aside from the smell, which could have come from anywhere, there was nothing outwardly upsetting about it. Yet something in the man's manner had shaken me. I didn't even know at the time whether it was a man. That was just an assumption I made, but I certainly had no plans to check. I'm quite a private person, so the idea of going round and trying to meet my neighbours at all was not one that I gave a lot of consideration, let alone this one who had spent the better part of half an hour staring at me. I decided to ignore the whole thing and get on with the process of moving in. I was very successful at ignoring the man upstairs, at least at first. It wasn't difficult as he was usually quiet and rarely came out of his flat as far as I could tell. In fact, as the time in my new home wore on, I started to recognise the other residents of Welbeck House. The white family that lived across the hall with their little girl, I sometimes heard her in the evening loudly protesting her bedtime. The old spinster next door, uh, Diane, I think her name was, or Diana. The Asian guy on the first floor that worked nights and slammed the doors too much. I doubt I ever exchanged more than a dozen words with any of them, but I began to know their sounds and their habits. In all that time, though, I'm not sure I ever saw the man who lived above me. Not in the hallway, not out the window. It was like he didn't exist, which was fine by me except that I would still very occasionally catch a whiff of that smell, rotten and earthy. It would catch me by surprise, and I'd usually spend a minute trying to track it down before it vanished. Once, I swear that as I stopped to look around, I heard the door upstairs close quietly. It seemed to me pretty obvious it was him. It wasn't ideal, but his hygiene problem was nobody's business but his own, and having figured out the source of the smell... It stopped bothering me quite so much on those rare moments that I caught it in the air currents of our building. It didn't enter my home, although I did take to lighting scented candles just in case, a habit I still keep up today. I decided all that was important to me was that he was quiet, which he was, at least for the first couple of years. The banging started on 5th July 2004. I know because it was the day before my 37th birthday, and I was unpacking a crate of beer for the friends I had invited over. At first I assumed the man upstairs was just nailing something into the wall, but after ten minutes it still hadn't stopped. Instead it just seemed to move. While at first it sounded like something being nailed into his wall, the banging started to move downwards, until it seemed he was knocking things right into the floor. At one point he was hammering directly over the light, causing it to sway slightly with each blow. This went on for almost an hour, and all I could do was try to ignore it, as there was nothing I wanted to do less than climb those stairs and knock on his door. Even so, by the time it finally finished, I was on the verge of doing exactly that. 
It did stop, though, and after it became clear it wasn't coming back any time soon, I tried to put it out of my mind and get back to my preparations. Thankfully, there was no disturbance from upstairs during my small party the following night, just the family from across the hall at one point asking for the music to be turned down. In fact, I didn't hear anything from him for another two weeks, when the banging started again. Again, it was almost an hour of hammering first into the walls, then moving down onto the floor, before stopping altogether. I was not happy about this, as I'm sure you can imagine, but I was still reluctant to confront this nameless person who lived over me, so I let it slide. From that point on, every two weeks it came, the hammering for an hour or thereabouts. I tried to find someone to complain to, but it seemed like whoever lived there owned the flat outright, so there was no landlord or housing association that I could report him to. The final straw came about six months later, and it was actually a very simple thing. I got a package delivered incorrectly to my flat. It was addressed to Mr. Toby Carlyle, and the flat number on it was not mine, but that of my upstairs neighbour. The envelope was thick and soft, must have been mainly full of bubble wrap or other packing material. It wasn't much, but it gave me another reason to go upstairs, and while delivering it, I could politely request that he stop his fortnightly hammering. It was harder than I thought to walk up those stairs, and I was surprised to find that my legs were shaking slightly as I reached the top. I got another whiff of that dank, rotten smell as I approached. The carpet immediately in front of the door was stained, ever so slightly, darker colour than it should have been, as though something had leaked out from underneath it. The wood was old and worn compared to the others in the building, which looked to have been replaced relatively recently. There was no number on it, or any indication that it was, in fact, Toby Carlyle who lived there. I knocked, trying to give the action a confidence that I frankly did not feel. There was no answer, so I knocked again, louder this time. I heard some movement from inside, gradually heading towards the door. The steps were muffled, like he was walking over thick carpet, until they stopped on the other side. There was no sound at all. I waited for a minute and was just about to knock again when the door opened, just a crack. There didn't seem to be any lights on inside. It wasn't open wide enough for me to get a good look, or even see the man himself. But it was enough that I heard when a cracked, ragged voice spoke. It said, What do you want? Through the crack I was hit by a sudden wave of that rancid air and reeled backwards, fighting back the urge to vomit. Through it, I had just about managed to stammer out the question as to whether he was Toby Carlyle, that I'd had a delivery for him. There was silence for a second. Then a hand shot out and grabbed the package I held, pulling it out of my grasp before I had a chance to fully realise what was happening. The hand was thin and pale, with long, filthy yellow fingernails. On the back, I saw a single dark red mark that might have been a cut or a lesion, but it was gone before I had a chance to see it in more detail. The door slammed in my face, and I was left standing in the hall, nauseous and confused. As I turned to go, I noticed that there was a spot of viscous liquid on my jacket sleeve, where the hand had brushed me, thick and off-white. I had to throw the jacket out in the end. I couldn't get rid of the smell. And so that was it for a long time. The man upstairs was named Toby, and he was a disgusting shut-in who smelled rancid and occasionally made hammering noises. 
It was a long way from ideal, but it was something I could understand and live with. Two years passed like this, and I had almost forgotten about him, to be honest. He had become just another part of my life and could be lived around. It wasn't until late 2007 I had cause to really think about him again. My mother's health had taken a turn for the worst over the previous few months, and I had made the decision to move back up to Sheffield to be nearer to her. As I mentioned, I'm self-employed, so the move wasn't as much of a difficulty as it might have been, but it did leave me with the need to sell my flat. I don't want to get bogged down with the details of my mother's ailments. In the end, she actually passed away a few months later from complications following an operation. I still ended up moving, though for a very different reason. It was difficult to sell the place. Every time someone came round for a viewing, it ended the same way, and I started to dread when the inevitable question would come. What's that smell? It was the third time that the potential buyers, a nice professional couple who worked in the city, pointed out the stain on the living room ceiling. It was subtle at first, a slight discoloration that I had managed to overlook. They assumed it was a leak, and I did too, promising to have a plumber come over and check it out though I didn't hear back from them anyway. I did call for a plumber, but for whatever reason was told that it would be another week before they could see me. I tried to have a couple more viewings in that time, but the stain on the ceiling was becoming more obvious, and the smell had begun to pervade my whole flat, to the point where I was thinking about staying in a hotel until the plumber arrived. I was starting to doubt it was a leaking water pipe. As it grew, it started to turn a dark yellow in colour, and glistened ever so slightly when the light hit it. I knew it was something to do with the flat upstairs, though when I went up to ask this time, my knocking went unanswered. Finally, the plumber arrived. He wrinkled his nose when he entered, though didn't make any comment about it. I assume unpleasant smells are just part of his job. I pointed him towards the stain on the ceiling, and he looked momentarily confused before telling me what I already knew, that this didn't look like a problem with the pipes. Still, he said he'd need to knock through the ceiling to have a look, and I'd need a contractor to come and redo that bit of ceiling anyway. I stood back when he put up his stepladder and climbed up to have a look at it. He put on a pair of rubber gloves and gingerly touched the spot, testing it with his fingers. It collapsed almost immediately, buckling and tearing like wet cardboard the fluid that oozed out of it was a sickly yellow in colour, with viscous white lumps glistening in it. The plumber looked like he was going to throw up. I did throw up. He made his apologies and said he'd have to call someone. I didn't try to stop him leaving. I was furious, and the anger that surged through me overcame any apprehension I might have felt from approaching the flat upstairs. I stormed up and began to hammer on the door, shouting and threatening that I'd call the police if he didn't answer. On my third knock, the door swung inwards ever so slightly, and I realised it was not locked. There is little in my life that I regret quite as much as going inside. I pushed the door open as much as I could, but it didn't open very wide, as there seemed to be some sort of resistance behind it. The smell would have been overpowering, but by this point I was almost used to it and fought down the nausea. There was no light coming from inside, and I fumbled on the wall for a switch. I found it, and the instant before I flicked it on, I realised I felt something 
soft and wet on the wall next to it. Unfortunately, before I had a chance to fully comprehend what I was feeling, I had turned on the light and saw Toby Carlyle's flat in its entirety. The light that came on was weak and tinged with red, but it was enough to see by. I looked around and saw that every surface, the walls, the floor, the tables, everything except the curtained windows, was covered in meat. Steaks, chunks of chicken, even a whole leg of what I assumed was once lamb, had been nailed everywhere. There were layers of it. The newest additions simply stuck on top of the old, and a putrid yellow-white rot could be seen where the oldest pieces had long since turned to liquid. Flies buzzed thick in the air, and maggots carpeted the place. Looking up, I saw the light, too, had been smeared with meat, causing the place to be bathed in that dull red light. Lying there, in the centre of the hallway, was the body of Toby Carlyle. His hood was pulled back, and I saw his face was covered in puckered septic lesions and holes. I couldn't tell which of them had once housed his eyes. I was frozen in place by the raw horror of what I was seeing, and almost automatically my hand found its way to my phone and I dialed the police. It was only then that my eyes drifted numbly towards the kitchen. There, in the centre of the floor, was a pile of discarded meat and bone, stacked almost as high as a person. It seemed less decayed than the rest of it, though that foul yellow fluid oozed from it, and this is the reason I'm talking to your institute, you see. Everything else could be put down to the problems of a very, very sick man, nothing supernatural about it, but... When I looked at that heaped pile of meat, it moved. I don't know how, I don't know quite how to explain it, other than to tell you that it, it opened its eyes. It opened all its eyes. The next thing I remember is the police's arrival and a lot of questions from officers trying to hide the fact that they had just finished vomiting. The pile of meat was gone, though the bits that had been nailed to the walls and floors remained. I told the police everything that I just told you although they dismissed the last bit out of hand. I believe they had to call in a hazmat team in the end. There's not much more to it, really. The rest of the story is largely arguing with insurance companies and counting how many showers it took before I felt clean again. I did move out in the end, and now live in a house in Clapham with some friends, people who are very clean and don't mind the fact that I've recently become a vegetarian. Statement ends. Well, I'm certainly glad I had my lunch before recording this statement. Looking into this one has proven a bit tricky, as police, hospital, and even fire department records give wildly conflicting reports. What we can be sure of is that on the evening of October the 22nd, 2007, there was an incident at a first-floor flat in Welbeck House that involved hazardous biological material and led to the recovery of the body of one Toby Carlyle, the legal owner of the property. The cause of death was listed as gangrene. We contacted Mr. Rudenko, who confirmed that, since moving, he had had no further experiences he believed to be linked to these events, and, after an extensive course of counselling, was attempting to move past them. He did corroborate the existing statement, though, 
saying he still believed it to be a true account of what happened to him. I'm not entirely sure I agree, although obviously there's little in the way of evidence to the contrary. One thing puzzles me, however. Sasha managed to get access to some of Toby Carlyle's old financial records, and it didn't appear like he had any real money coming in, and what he did have was largely going to pay council tax on the property. There are no records of transactions at any supermarkets or online delivery firms, and Tim even asked around some of the local butchers, as Martin is still off sick. At the end of all this, we've still been unable to answer one question. Where was he getting the meat? I don't know why, but it bothers me. End recording. The Magnus Archives is a podcast distributed by RustyQuill.com and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike International License. Today's episode was written and performed by Jonathan Sims. It was produced by Alexander J. Newell, Mike LeBeau, and Murray Porter, and directed by Alexander J. Newell. To comment on episodes, make donations and view links, images, videos, and show notes, visit RustyQuill.com. Rate and review us on iTunes, visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at TheRustyQuill, or email us at mail at RustyQuill.com. Thanks for listening. Truth is stranger than fiction. And this is the proof. This is Ripley's. Believe it or not. Dick Allen of Happy, Texas, born without ears or ear openings, could hear distinctly through his mouth and became an excellent musician. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you a story about a baby who commanded an army. Duke Godivart Godfrey III of Brabant, Belgium, succeeded his father as sovereign when he was only three months old. As soon as he was on the throne, war broke out and it became the baby's duty to lead the army into battle. He was placed in a cradle in charge of a nurse who strapped him between two trees right on the battlefield. The battle was won, and the infant was credited with the victory. A commander-in-chief in diapers. Believe it or not. Alright, and we are back. Or I'm back. Whatever. Anyway, uh, that was... Uh, hold on one second. Uh, test, test, test. I think that sounds good. Uh, that was episode 18 of the Magnus Archives, The Man Upstairs. Uh, where'd the meat come from? Who knows? We might find out. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so yeah, we're gonna get ready for the Strange Doctor Weird. Weird. Oh, 
sorry. Uh, just a little note. Um, earlier, we had a little snafu with my equipment that caused basically everything to stop recording properly. Um, I believe I still had audio going out the air, um, but it was dead air. Well, no, I think it was just dead air. Ow. Long story short, um, that will be fixed in the podcast edition of tonight's program. I just, I accidentally unplugged my mic and, uh, that makes things go a little, uh, haywire. So there you go. Anyway, we are going to get back to it. Strange Dr. Weird. Uh, this episode is entitled, let me see, let me see. That's not titled, The Dark Wings of Death. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't do the, the maniacal um, laughter. And I, I will say, I find the concept of an infant commander i mean come on it's like duke are you sure are you sure that nap time is the soundest strategy for this battle <laughs> anyway um we will be right back um uh, with some some interesting horror related well dark you know well i wouldn't say it's straight up horror but uh we'll have a little story to share to, when we get back next up Strange Dr. Weird. you to his world of mystery, a brief look at the world of fashion. When the new Adam 5 was first designed, Adam's expert hatters spared no time nor expense to make sure that the Adam 5 would be smart, down to the very last detail. They got what they wanted, and so will you, for just $5. The new Adam 5 is now on display at the thousands of Adam hat stores and authorized dealers from coast to coast. Step into the one nearest you and ask to see an Adam 5. Notice the handsome style, the perfect fit, the quality all fur felt. Then, try it on. Yes, sir. You'll look like a new man in your Adam 5. Now, Dr. Weird. And now for my story, The Dark Wings of Death. 
It begins in the small east side apartment of Ned and Helen Kennedy, who are having a uh, slight discussion. Ned, I tell you, if your Uncle Simon won't lend you the money, you'll have to kill him and take it, do you hear? But look, Helen, if we just wait a little longer, he's so old and feeble, he may die any day now. We can't wait. That shortage in your accounts will be discovered by next week. We've talked this all over before. Why are you hesitating now? You're afraid? No, no, it's not that. It's that pet raven of Uncle's. It makes me so uneasy. His raven. So that's it. You're afraid of a bird. Now, wait a minute, Helen. That raven isn't an ordinary bird. The way it watches me with those red eyes and the way it screeches whenever I'm in the room. Well, it almost acts as if it knew I was thinking of killing Uncle Simon. All right, Ned, go to prison then. No. I'll do it if I have to. I'm going to try to borrow the money from him first. You can try, but you won't get it. Now, you'd better get over to that horrible old tenement he lives in with his supper. After he's eaten it and fallen asleep, remember just how he planned everything. Turn on the gas heater, unlight it, so it'll look as if it had been blown out and he died in his sleep. A few minutes later, Ned Kennedy was entering a small, bitterly cold room on the top floor of an ancient tenement building that stood on the very banks of the East River, its windows looking directly down on the cold, gray water. In a bed against the wall, a white-haired old man lay, his face lighting up with malicious amusement as Ned entered. On the head of the bed perched a huge black raven, and as it saw Ned, it flapped its wings angrily. Lucifer. Come on in, Ned. You needn't be afraid of Lucifer. I brought you some soup and sandwiches for your supper, Uncle Simon. I'll put them on the table here. Not poisoned, are they, Ned? Not poisoned by that pretty little devil you married? Uncle, for heaven's sake, don't be absurd. <gasps> here, eat your supper before the soup gets cold. All right, Ned. Now then, what's on your mind? You want something, I can tell. Out with it, Ned. All right, Uncle Simon. I'm $4,000 short in my accounts at the gas company. Eh? I've got to replace the money this week or I'll be caught. And you want me to lend it to you, is that it? Please, Uncle. You've got to. You wouldn't let your only living relative go to jail, would you? I, of course I would. If you've stolen, you should pay the penalty. Why, you miserable old skin flint. Uh, 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 no. Let go, you. You'll kick me. Lucifer! Lucifer! No, get away from me! Get away from me! He's trying to get on my eyes! That'll teach you to try tricks on me! Get him away from me! He's trying to pick my eyes out! Lucifer! Back your perch! Look at my hand! It's bleeding! Serves you right! Next time I won't stop him! Lucifer will pick your eyes right out of your head! And your soul right out of your body, Ned! Yes! Carry them away to be Elzebub, his master, too. Oh, for heaven's sake, stop that. Lucifer isn't any ordinary bird. He's a winged demon, straight from Inferno. Yes, and as sure as ever you harm me, Lucifer will snatch you up and fly off to the pit with you. I said stop it. Yeah, ask Mrs. O'Rock, the superintendent's wife downstairs. Many's the night she's seen Lucifer flying away from the window in the darkness. His eyes gleaming with red fire, and his claws glowing with phosphorus. Off to pay a visit to the devil, his master. Oh, that's just nonsense. Now, if you're finished, I'll take the dishes away. You, you sure you won't lend me the money then, Uncle Simon? No, I won't. 
$10,000 hidden in the wall here beside my bed, as you know. You shan't have that till I die. I tell you, there's no other way. If your uncle won't lend you the money, you have to kill him and take it, do you hear? Good night, Ned. I'm going to sleep now. After they put you in jail, Lucifer and I will come and visit you. Now and then, old skinflint. He's asleep. When he's asleep, turn on the gas heater, unlight it, so it'll look as if it had been blown out. In an hour, he'll be dead and it'll look like an accident. Yes, I have to do it. I have to do it. Before you take a rest, Dr. Weird, uh, would you tell me the time? You're not leaving already, are you? Oh, not yet, Doctor. I just wanted to remind the man of our audience that whatever the hour, they're usually meeting people whose opinions they just naturally value. Calling on business associates, joining a friend at lunch, going to the theater. Those are the times you want to look your best. And nothing counts more in making a good impression than your personal appearance. Naturally, clothes are important. But what's equally important is that every article fits into the picture. That's where Adam Hat come in. Because the style of an Adam is just right. Made of fine quality, all fur felt, in the smartest shades, Adam hats are the last word in fashion. Carefully designed, down to the smallest detail, and long wearing as well. An Adam is a wise investment in your personal appearance. So, if you want to look your best, stop your clothes picture with a new Adam hat. Now, Dr. Weird. And now to continue my story, The Dark Wings of Death. After leaving the gas heater turned on full and unlighted in his uncle's tiny room, Ned has just reached home. Helen! Helen! Ned, you did it, didn't you? I can tell by your face. Yes, I had to. He absolutely refused to lend me the money. I told you he would. You got it anyway, didn't you? Where is it? Let me see it. Why, I haven't got it yet. You haven't? Why not? Well, I couldn't get it until he was dead, of course. Till the room was filled with gas and he's breathed it for a while. Oh, yes, of course. But I said it'd be easy, and it was, wasn't it? Yes. Except for the raven. It attacked me. Look at my hand. <sighs> Just a scratch. Don't tell me you're still worried about that bird. Well, suppose it attacks me again when I go back for the money. Forget it. The raven will be dead, too. The gas will kill it. Oh, yes, yes, of course. In any case, I'm going back with you. I'll wait until midnight. Be sure to be dead by then. Oh, and another thing. The room will be full of gas. We'll have to wear masks of some kind. Masks? Why, I hadn't thought of that. Well, I did. As auditor, you have keys to the gas company office. We'll go down now and get two of the masks the workmen use when they're repairing leaks in the mains. In the morning, you can replace them and no one will ever know. It was just after midnight when Ned stood once more in the cold, dark hall outside his uncle's door. Helen at his side. I don't hear any sound inside. Of course not. They're both dead. Come on, put on your mask and let's get it over with. All right. Here, now, this strap goes over your head. Now, breathe through your mouth. You can talk, too. These masks are the latest type. Talk? Yes, I can, can't I? There. Now, we're all set. Have your flashlight on. Mm -hmm. We mustn't turn on any lights. The least spark would explode the gas and blow us sky high. I know. Come on. He's dead. Of course he is. 
Where's the razor? Oh, what does it matter? Come on. Help me move the bed. You take that end. All right. Take it easy now. It looks as if he were asleep. Oh, forget him. Where did he keep the money? There's a loose board. This... Listen, the raven, it's still alive. It can't be. I don't hear it. There, it's perched on that chair. Flapping its wings. Oh, get away from me. Get away. Ned, get hold of yourself. There's nothing there. Nothing, I tell you. There is. It attacked me. Look out. Here he comes again. Trying to get at my eyes. Keep it away. Keep it away. Ned, stand still. You've backed us right up against the window. I tell you, there's nothing there. It's just your imagination. It's coming at my eyes again. I'll stop it. I'll stop it. Ned, that gun, where'd you get it? I brought it with me in case of an emergency. I'll stop that raven. Oh, don't use that gun, you fool. This room is full of gas. The shot would make it explode and kill us both. Look out, it's coming at me again. Don't A short time later... Mrs. O'Rourke, wife of the superintendent, was telling the police her strange story. Just at midnight it was, officer. And I'm standing at the window when up above there's an explosion, fair to wake the dead. And outside me window I see a great flash of light. And what else do you suppose? You've already told us, Mrs. O'Rourke. You saw a man and a woman blown clear out through the window and into the river down there. Blown out nothing. They was flying through the air, holding on to each other. And that raven had his claws in the man's hair and was flying away with them. His eyes blazing fire as he took them off to the devil, his master. Now, Mrs. O'Rourke, you're letting your imagination run away with you. I know what I saw. But you can't have seen that. Because we found the raven dead on the floor beside the old man's bed. The gas had killed the two of them, both together. about Ned and Helen, wasn't it? Their bodies were never recovered from the river. It was almost as if they really had been carried off to some place not on this earth. But since Lucifer the Raven was found dead beside his master's bed, what do you suppose it was that flew with Ned in the darkness? Birds never have ghosts. Or do they? Oh, you have to go... And perhaps you'll drop in again soon. Just look for the house on the other side of the cemetery. The house of Dr. Weird. While Dr. Weird prepares his statement of next week's thriller, I'd like to read a brief statement from the makers of Adam Hatch, who bring you this program. Quote, our purpose is to offer hats of the finest style, made of the finest material, and executed with the finest workmanship. We want you to know that your Adam hat is a quality hat. At the same time, we want your purse to know that Adam offers a great value. So we present our smart line of Adam hats at prices which we honestly believe give you the most for your money. Millions of men agree with us, and we're sure you will too. Step into any of the thousands of Adam Hat stores and authorized dealers all over the nation. And our hatters will be glad to show you our latest line of fine-looking Adam Hats. Priced from $3.45 to $10. Unquote. Now, Dr. Weird. I hope you'll drop in again next week. I want to tell you a story I call The Secret Room. It's a story. 
story about two escaped Nazi prisoners who were quite sure they were smarter than the... the... But the rest of the story will have to wait until your next visit. Good night. Join us again next week at this same time for another visit with the strange Dr. Weird. The Strange Dr. Weird, directed by Jock McGregor, is presented by the makers of Adam Hat, the hats that are always top in quality. Dick Willard speaking. This is Mutual. Among the stranger memorials left on Earth is a chief's grave in the Banza Sangabondo tribe, marked by all the gin bottles he emptied in his lifetime. Believe it or not. In a moment, I'll tell you about a potentate who lived two lives. The Raja of Kulampur certainly led a double life. By day, he ruled an Indian state with a population of over a million people. But when it grew dark, the Raja disguised himself as a robber. Then, leading a band of thieves, the Raja plundered and robbed not only the subjects of his own kingdom, but his own treasury as well. He was even so bold as to offer a reward for the capture of this gang, the gang he led himself, believe it or not. And we are back. That was The Strange Doctor Weird from February 6th, 1945. The Dark Wings of Death. Uh, Alright, so we're going to get to our all-time radio show for this week. This will be the Black Mass production of Lord Dunsany's The Witch of the Willows uh, from January 29th, 1964. And then we'll uh, we'll get to our. That's right, folks. Podcast pick of the week is back, and we're gonna get to this. And uh, we'll be back after this.
this evening brings us to more serious business. We hope that the purists in our audience will not be too upset at certain liberties we have taken in our adaptation. Here is Bernard Mays as Mr. Jorkins and Pat Franklin as his female companion in Lord Dunsany's story, The Witch of the Willows. I wandered about the country, always alone, not caring really where I went. One day I came to the Willow Wood, a haunted sort of place, marsh floating all through it, ideal for a lonely and aimless man. I was tired of ordinary things and ordinary people, what they said and did, the everyday things, everything lacking in wonder, surprise. Magic. Mystery. And there was a mystery in the woods. The sun had begun to set, and the mystery was settling among the willows. Oddly enough, as I wandered deeper and deeper among the trees, the, the mystery didn't recede. Not a spell seemed lifted. But that ominous and immense threat of magic became overpowering. Suddenly, an old woman in a black cloak and a high black hat carrying a black stick, she came towards me, and that mystery, that unaccountable thing that has been called magic, that was haunting the willows, moved with her as she came. She approached quickly, paying no attention to me until we were almost facing. Then a quick glance of her eyes, all magic and wonder in her ugliness, I fumbled for something to say. Huh? Huh? Uh, is there, is there no, no way out of these marshes? <laughs> no, no, there is no way out. I stood a while and gazed, fascinated by the mystery of her. She leaned her hands upon the stick and gazed at me gray ringlets hanging down from under her hat. Oh, what has come over these marshes? Sunset and witchcraft. What does the witchcraft portend? Huh? Who knows that? Not even the witches know that. And why do they make witchcrafts? Enchanting a place like this till one can hardly tell if one is still on earth. If there's a warning put on a place, it's for folks to heed the warning, not to go bothering those that have other things to do with the way and the why and the wherefore. A warning's a warning, and that's all there is to it. Well, the, the sun has set, and I, I think I'll take that warning. Huh? Do as you will. Now, if I, if I come back, should I ever see you here? You might come for weeks and never find me. And then one day I'd be here. Then I'll come again. I'll come again. I stayed at a little inn called Wold's End, 
a mile or so from the marshes. And that evening I returned barely in time for dinner. I couldn't put the mood of my strange adventure out of mind. And in contrast, the company, the whole interior of Wold's End, was a dreary replica of life in general. Wholesome food, kindly people, we expected the safe. Um, you haven't forgotten our cribbage uh, this evening, Mr. Jorgen? Uh, no, Colonel Haverson, but I'm a, I'm a little tired, I'm afraid. Oh, uh, Mrs. Norris says you have been exploring the Willow Wood uh, this evening. Yes. Uh, take care of the marshes there. They're dangerous, you know, mm. dangerous, but, but a good place for grouse. In season, of course. Later I stood at my window and looked down toward the woods. The moon lit the hillside, and below it I could see the trees. Black, darker than the night, the mystery still there. But when I walked down next morning, it was gone. It was gone when I went back at sunset. Day after day I went, and still she did not come. I haunted the place till all the water-hens knew me and the rooks. Then, one afternoon, two weeks later, no sooner had I entered the solitude of the willows, than the transformation began. The shadows between the trees became heavy with portents or omens. The stillness full of whispers. The mystery gathered about me. And in the midst of it, she walked with her black stick. The mystery coming with her. She nodded as she approached with what may have been a smile at the end of her lips. Willow Witch, uh, as you see, I have come back. Hmm? Uh, you told me there was no way out of the marshes. Nor is there. You come back and back to them. That's true. They have a hold upon me already, and it's not the marshes or the willows. When you are not here, they are nothing more than the time of day can make of any place. It's for the magic in you that I return. <laughs> the magic in me. And your weariness of the things of every day, pushed and pulled, back and back. Where do you live? Out of sight, out of hearing of the folks of every day. Where? Merling's Wood. Merling's Wood, by this path. Wait, can can I come with you? Ah, uh, if you can follow. Uh, I, I can if you wait. The, the light is too dim to see the path. You have to keep up. But you disappear. When I try to look, you're gone. Wait. Lunge, Mr. Jorkins. Oh. Lunge, oh. or you'll oh. never make it. Wait. <laughs> Wait! Wait! But she was gone. But that wasn't the first time we've had trouble with the natives in that area. No, no. Sometime earlier that year. Oh, here, I wanted you to try some of this, this port. Yes, the natives. Oh, 
during the cholera uh, epidemic. That was unendurable. During my uh, what? Uh, I said it was. Uh, was it curable? Oh, uh, oh well, with with the right uh, treatment. Uh, uh. Yes, it was during the cholera epidemic. Then I, I did something absurd, but I, I couldn't help it. The decanter of port, Colonel Havison's prize port, was sitting on the end table beside me. I'd been fingering the cut glass neck. The fireplace, several yards across the room, the large stone fireplace. Suddenly, quite unaccountably, I picked up the decanter and flung it against the stone. Oh, oh, oh I say, Jorkins. Uh, Jorkins. I plunged out of the house, down the road to the woods, through the marshes. The mystery was everywhere, thicker than the trees, almost suffocating. But I headed as if guided through the woods. A wood remembered from one's earliest years. This strange, almost terrible feeling seemed to come from straight ahead. It was the path itself, straight ahead, until it seemed to veer very slightly to, to the left. And from this I gathered that I should find the home of the witch. And sure enough, there it was, a cottage in the midst of strangeness and mystery. The cottage was small and roofed with a dark thatch. Windows made of round panes the size and thickness of the ends of bottles. I heard my knock on the door before, or so it seemed, I quite reached it, and instantly it opened, and there she stood, in her cloak. Magic seemed to pour out around her. Well, I have come. Yes, and do you come in? Do you enter a witch's cottage? Yes. Well, the door is open, Mr. Jorkins. I entered. <sighs> and a swell of dark, terrible power seemed to leap at me. Then shortly the magic subsided. It withdrew to the corners and walls of the little room. A fireplace emerged, a, a glowing blood-red flame within it. A, a large black cat lying before it, and the, and the witch bent over, sweeping something. The decanter. Colonel Haversom's decanter. Well, there's been an accident, but maybe it will be mended by and by. The room was difficult to see clearly. A few things stood out. A, a stove, a table, several chairs... All strangely carved and inset. Will you have some tea? Ah. Uh, yes. Cowslip, briar rose, or daffodil? Oh, uh, 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 uh cowslip. Mm. It was a strange brewing. She boiled water in a great kettle over the fire. Then threw handfuls of withered dry cowslip blooms into her teapot and added a sprinkling of herbs. She filled with it two earthenware cups, glazed green on the outside, and instead of milk, she poured honey. 
all the while her cat watched us from the fireplace. We sat watching the fire, drinking the strange tea. As the shapes of the coals changed, she peered more and more intently. It seemed as though events were passing before us through the deeps of the fire. Trouble coming to the world. Oh, what trouble? All going the wrong way. Losing hold. Where do we want to go? Where, where should we? Ah, that's the affair of witches. Do you know? He knows. The old cat. The dark one. He doesn't run to town. He doesn't plan or worry. He knows what is coming, dark one. Winter, spring, nothing can hasten it. Nothing stop it, eh? Uh, do, Do you care about the world? Witches, we are abandoned and sought. Abandoned and sought. Whisper. What do you whisper? What do you say? Oh, we provide. What? What you've come for. What? Not to know about the world. Is that what you provide? That's what you seek, Mr. Jorgens. You uh. do not find the things of every day in my cottage. Yet you come back and back. Mr. <laughs> the end of your world, Mr. Jorkins. Beyond. Will I find it here? Will, will you help me? Help you? Show me. <laughs> <laughs> will you? Are you afraid, Mr. Jorkins? Uh, is it dangerous? <laughs> Surrounding the house. Deadly power. It could crush mm. you to the size of a pebble. Mr. Jorgen. Handful of pebbles. You. 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 Why is it dangerous? Why and wherefore? How and where to? Stakes and witches gallows. Is there a test? A price? A wall, a blade, a fire? The things of every day, Mr. Jorkins. I'm not here to help you. What danger, then? What am I to do? Look. Where? Into the fire. Fire? It isn't a fire. (laughs) Listen. Oh, oh, it isn't a wind. Pet, my dark one. Pet, my dark one. No, no! See me, Mr. Jorkins. Could you ever love an old, old woman like me? Could you ever love an old, old woman like me, Mr. Jorkins? Ah, That is the test. Could you ever love an old, old woman like me? (laughs) 
an enchanted witch. I can break the spell by saying, saying yes. Then all will be well. You'll emerge far lovelier than any creature. Or a spider, or a goat, huh? or a death oh. twice as ugly. Ah, oh. <laughs> oh, the look in your eyes, Mr. Jorkins. Do magic and mystery on your own terms. Tests and prices, sleight of hand. Do you think no claim is to be made upon you? There, look. There's the abyss. There the flame, here the emptiness, the ugly. <laughs> no. Could you ever love an old, old no. woman like me? No, 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 stay away from me. You're hideous, hideous. <laughs> then at the very words there came a look in her eyes like flaming stars in the night. The cat appeared to increase in size to an enormous horror. The room became darker. There was nothing I could say to explain my refusal except that all the magic and mystery that had first intrigued me was now horrifying and deadly. It was a wave that seemed to threaten all. A wave that began to fade away without breaking. I had rushed out of the cottage but had not gone many yards from the angry witch when her house and the whole forest became section by section disenchanted. When I last saw her, she was standing there in her open door looking after me. There's something of mystery still surrounding her. I couldn't distinguish whether her look was of rage or of sorrow. And as she and her cottage passed out of sight, I saw the last of magic that I shall ever see. Soon again I was back at Wall's End. Yes, the last of it. I searched again and again, but I never found the cottage. The witch never came back again to the Willow Wood. I finger Colonel Haberson's decanter of fine port. <laughs> Not the least scar on it. For years after that, whenever twilight or sunset gave a queer look to a field or a distant hill, whenever anything strange seemed haunting birches or willows, I would set out at once, however far the walk, and in any weather or hour, to see if the magic that I have known had ever come back. No, it never came back. It never came back. That was Bernard Mays as Mr. Jorkins, and Pat Franklin as the witch, in our version of Lord Dunsany's story, The Witch of the Willows. <laughs> break up our chain of empathy for this evening. We shall meet again around this hour, real soon, with another discomforting tale. Join us at that time. Good night.
The technical production for this evening's broadcast was by John Whiting. Music specially composed for this program was by Peter Winkler. Saki's story, as May, and The Witch of the Willows, by Lord Dunsany, were adapted for radio by your host of the Black Mass, Eric Bowersfeld. This series was conceived by Jack Nessel and recorded in the studios of KPFA in Berkeley. All right, and we are back. We're going to run a little long by about probably about five minutes, but I just want to remind everyone that uh, all incidental music heard on this program is brought to us courtesy of Tabletop Audio, tabletopaudio.com. Copyright, uh, no, um, royalty-free music forever you work, wherever you work, podcast or play, Dungeons & Dragons. All right, just a reminder about all the fine programming you can hear here on Radio for Humans. Tomorrow night, 7 to 7 p.m. Eastern, you will hear Voodoo Zombie Boutique presents Time for Go to Bed with Kenny Pick and the Sues, followed immediately by this week's edition of From the Bunker with Jody Hamilton. Friday night, you'll hear uh, It Came from Cleveland with a brand new mythical moment by yours cruelly, uh, and that all starts at 7 p.m. Eastern. Saturday night, you'll hear Paul's Memory Bank starting at 7 p.m. Eastern. And of course, Midnight Sun immediately following that at 11 p.m. Eastern. No, I'm sorry. Paul's Memory Bank is at 8 p.m. Eastern. Midnight Sun falls immediately at 11. I think. He needs to get a new promo. <laughs> I need to do new promos. Of course, uh, so Midnight Sun begins at 11 p.m. Eastern, where you can hear an eclectic mix of J-pop, J-rock, and the latest and greatest from anime, video games, and movies. Monday and Wednesday morning at 
8.30 in the morning. You will hear the Tim Coromel Show. And of course, you can also hear that in prime time on Tuesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. And I think that's everything that we run on the network. If I forgot anything, nothing personal. It's been about a month since I've done this. Uh, but considering how long it's been, I think that the fact that um, I only had one minor catastrophe is uh, a great sign. So, all right, so we're going to get to our podcast pick for this week. This is one that just recently ended up on my radar. Um, and I, I don't even remember how I heard about it. Um, it no, it was in a, it was a, a trailer was included on a um, podcast I enjoy listening to. We can kill the kill kill the music. Um, but this is a fascinating. Uh, podcast. Let me see here. Uh, got got. I forgot the. Uh, it is the Godfrey Audio Guide. And the basic premise of this podcast is that. Uh, you are listening to an audio guide for the Annabel H. Godfrey Historic Estate and Museum. Um, and this is basically a place where uh, various um, objects of art are uh, collected. <sighs> Excuse me. Uh, the host, or, well, the primary voice you're going to be hearing is uh, Nicole Knudsen. Hopefully I pronounced that right, Nicole. Um, but the basic premise is that you are going on an audio guided tour through this this art gallery. And um, what's interesting about this, first of all, um, what's interesting is that um, this does use um, their actual works of art that are discussed. And then they make up stuff, you know, make up works of art. Um, it, it, like I said, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, so we're going to get right to the... Um, trailer for the Godfrey Audio Guide. Hello and welcome to the Annabel H. Godfrey Historic Estate and Museum. Thank you for joining us on the Godfrey's world-famous audio guide. I'll be your host for the duration of your time here at the estate and look forward to enlightening you as to the history and unique beauty of Annabelle's eclectic collection of art, antiquities, and curiosities. But before we begin, I must go over a few notices and estate rules. Firstly, on the chance that you failed to read the fine print when checking out this audio guide, and are currently standing in the middle of our atrium, waiting for a staff member to come and collect you, this is a self-guided tour. Each audio guide is equipped with a GPS tracking device, which triggers the commentary for the nearest collection item. This provides the dual benefit of a custom experience for you and helping the Godfrey staff locate unreturned audio guides. Many audio guides are discovered abandoned in dark and seldom traversed corners of the estate, their patrons nowhere to be found. Which leads me to my second point of business. Stay out of the shadows. Thirdly, Breaks in commentary as you move between collection items may be filled with historical tidbits about the estate, details about current or upcoming exhibits and offerings, general announcements, or words from our sponsor. 
Do not be alarmed when these start playing. And no, you cannot mute or skip them. Fourthly, and this should go without saying, do not touch any collection items. This is for your own safety. That's all for now. Shall we begin? The Godfrey Audio Guide is a fiction podcast that blends horror, sci-fi, and art history, both real and imagined, and which guides the listener through the mysterious Godfrey Estate and Museum. Interested in taking the tour? Find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. And make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. See you at the museum. All right, so that was the trailer for the Godfrey Audio Guy. We're going to get straight to a cut. A clip from their first episode that talks about the abduct a painting and again this is where I'm talking about that they blend real art history with fictional art history this is a kind of a bizarre you know occulty alternate interpretation of this classic painting the abduction of Europa The Abduction of Europa, 1716, Jean-Francois de Troyes, Oil on Canvas. Annabelle Hepzibah Godfrey fostered a lifelong love of and fascination with classical mythology, and this painting is among the first she ever acquired for what has become one of the crowning and definitive permanent collections here at the estate. It's easy to see what first drew Annabelle's attention. The contrast between the darkness of the forested shore and the vibrant blues of sky and sea is striking, and that is only at first glance. Perhaps it too drew you in, as it did Annabelle so many years ago. But what holds you, what held Annabelle, is the drama unfolding at the center of the image. Detroit's interpretation of this classic tale is truly remarkable. He paints Europa, clad in garments of palest gold and pink, in her vicious and bitter struggle against the bull, who those with a passing knowledge of the Greeks will know is actually Zeus in disguise. If you are unfamiliar with the tale, Zeus, who fixated upon Europa, a Phoenician princess, disguised himself in the form of a white bull to get close to the unsuspecting object of his lust, and, when the opportunity presented itself, to steal her away. Greek mythology is filled with similar accounts. Zeus always thought that lies and trickery would deceive his targets, yet we see here, with Europa as in other tales, how very mistaken he was. Though less physically imposing here than is Detroit's depiction of Zeus as the bull, the painter masterfully renders Europa's fortitude and fierce determination in the set of her brow, in the expression in her eyes, in the hard lines of her face as she considers her adversary. She is bare-chested as she stares down her foe. A common means of dress for warrior women is it allowed them full range of motion, the better to wield the battle axes, broadswords, or daggers as were usually carried by women of the time. Detroit takes some creative license here and equips Europa with a single hatchet, perhaps to better illustrate the surprise nature of the attack as Europa unprepared for an assault of this kind, has left her heavier martial weapons at home, 
Surrounding Europa and her bovine adversary are her fellow warrior women, ready to provide assistance should their princess call for it. One wonders why Jean-Francois de Troyes titled this work The Abduction of Europa, for Zeus failed in his attempt to steal her from her home and to force her into unspeakable acts. Europa won that fight. The continent of Europe is named after her in celebration of that fact, and she sent the bruised and bleeding bull running back across the sea from which he had come with no one but his lowly cherubin servant to tend to his many and well-deserved wounds. Perhaps the failed abduction of Europa, or the bull's defeat, didn't have quite the ring that he was going for. But, oddly named or not, Detroit's work here is a stunning rendition of this famous and inspiring tale. Looking for ways to bring the memories of your time here home with you? Have you always wanted to showcase world-class artwork in your own home? Well, that's too bad because you can't have ours. But what you can have are copies of those famous pieces of art, printed on any and every surface imaginable. We do mean everything. Have a recent high school graduate in your life whose dorm room could use some sprucing up? We've got a vast selection of posters featuring prints of some of the most popular collection items here at the estate. Need a coffee mug that'll convince your friends, family, and co-workers that you are, at least occasionally, cultured? We've got plenty to choose from for you caffeine junkies out there. Did you underestimate just how cold these drafty museum galleries can get? We have a lovely array of knit infinity scarves to help you bundle up against the chill. Full disclosure, these do not have any artworks printed on them, but they will make you look like a bohemian artist yourself. All this and so much more can be found at the estate gift shop. Not sure where to find it? Don't worry, you'll find the gift shop at the end of each and every exhibit. Every. Last. One. The exact. Same. Gift shop. Efforts have been made over the years to explain this architectural mystery, but to no avail. So if you do not wish to be forever exiting through the gift shop, then simply backtrack through the exhibit you have just ambled through until you reach the entrance. And we do mean backtrack quite literally. It never seems to work correctly when people just turn around and walk the other direction. And don't worry about any odd looks that your fellow Godfrey guests may give you as you walk backwards through the halls. Our staff are always on hand to politely remind the gawkers that it is rude to stare. But the perfect gift for yourself or your loved ones might be waiting for you in the Godfrey gift shop. So stop on by and give it a look. Statistically speaking, you'll run into it eventually. Okay, and I probably will have to edit that a bit after the uh, end post because my mic was still hot. But uh, yeah, I, I, I what I like about this podcast is that uh, the episodes are short, uh, ten to fifteen minutes in my experience. So I mean, it doesn't require a huge commitment on time, you know. Uh, and it's just like I said, I love the blending of these fantastic interpretations of these real world paintings with the you know stuff that they make up. Um, so yeah, that is the Godfrey audio guide link will be in the show notes. Excuse me. Anyway, uh, so that's it, uh, for our grand return to the airways. Um, 
again, I really do appreciate all the, the understanding and compassion I received during this time of crisis. Um, I'd also like to thank my mom for helping me out. For You know, she came down here and, and helped me get to where I wouldn't have to move. So thank you very much, Mom. Uh, Kenny, you're the greatest. Um, and again, thank you all for allowing me to do this program that I like to do. Uh, we may be looking at uh, changing things up a bit. Uh, it's not that I don't enjoy Dread Time Stories, it's just that I'd like a bit more variety, so we may look into making Dread Time Stories twice a month and, and do another project twice a month. I don't know yet. We'll think about it. Um, but I can tell you I've got some great events coming up in May. I'll be doing my annual Tal Day show. So this show will not be on the air on May 25th. Um, we'll be airing the primary and secondary phases of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy as we do every year in honor of the memory of the dearly departed Douglas Adams. And of course, June, um, on this program, we're going to be doing a series about Robert E. Howard. Uh, you probably know him as the author of the Conan series. And it, don't get me wrong, don't hold that, you know, I don't have a problem with that, but he did so much more too. Um, and, and he had a fascinating idea where, you know, no matter how advanced the civilization was, it was always going to regress back to a barbaric state. And that theme is... In all of his writings, all of his writings, um, but especially the Conan series, where you know you have these great civilizations in Lemuria and Atlantis, and uh, by the time we get to Conan's age, basically it's the show is being run by barbarians. So, yeah, so we'll be doing a series on Robert E. Howard in June, and uh, yeah, so don't forget Friday, sometime Friday night. Uh, 7 10 p.m. Eastern. Off a new mythical moment. This week will be uh, number 30 The Abduction of Persephone, the reason for the seasons. Alright, so uh, as always, this is yours cruelly. Uh, wishing you and yours a very nice week. And uh, as always, until next we meet, unpleasant dreams. <laughs>